It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, now in ancient history, there were certain features of the landscape, certain places which held particular importance in certain stories, whether that's the pillars of Hercules at the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, whether it's the Caspian Gates in the Caucasus, the River Nile in Egypt, the River Oxus in Afghanistan, the Pamirs, the Hindu Kush, the Alps and Hannibal's Crossing, and many, many others. In today's podcast, we're going to be focusing on one such feature, the importance of a narrow stretch of water that divides Sicily and southern Italy, the Strait of Messina. Now, joining me to talk about the importance of this narrow stretch of water, particularly for two cities in antiquity, the cities of Messana and Regium, I was delighted to be joined by Dustin McKenzie, a PhD student from Macquarie University in Sydney. Now, a few years back when I was studying at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Dustin taught me for a short period of time, so it was great to see him again and to talk all things the Strait of Messina. Here's Dustin. Dustin, it is great to see you again. How have you been? Good, man. Good. Uh, Lovely to see you again. It's been a few years. Last time we spoke, I was halfway through the MPhil at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And now I'm halfway through the PhD at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. And Macquarie University. Not Macquarie University, a mistake I have made in the past and I'm now learning from. But we are talking about another M today. We are talking about this amazing, this remarkable strait, the Strait of Messina in antiquity that's between Italy and Sicily. And this is an amazing stretch of water. It feels like the Hellespont of the West, this significant small stretch of water that boasts a very important history in antiquity. Yeah, it gets identified pretty early on, I'd say, by the Greeks and then later the Romans as not only a very strategic space, but a space that has a lot of power to it, both physically, mechanically, but socially and religiously. So it soaks up a lot of imagery and meaning over the years. Now, start with the background, and I kind of mentioned it there, but let's, Dustin, let's really set the scene. Where is the Strait of Messina? Yeah, so the Strait of Messina, as you said, is that little bit of water that separates Italy and Sicily. At its narrowest, it's only three kilometers thereabouts wide. And at its shallowest, it's only 70 meters deep. So that's right at the northeast tip of Sicily there, that narrowest bit. That's very shallow, uh, very narrow. Otherwise, on average, kind of five to six kilometers across. And if you're on either bank, Sicily's bank looking east or Italy's bank looking west, you do have this wonderful optical illusion where it almost looks like you're not looking at the Mediterranean at all. You're looking at a lake almost because of the way the boundaries of the island and the peninsula kind of wrap around one another. So it's quite a a breathtaking uh, view for the first time you see it. Is it like one of those places, I've never been, but is it like one of those places like Pompeii, when you visit there, you hear all about it, but when you actually visit it, you really appreciate the outstanding geography of the place? Yeah, I think so. As with Pompeii, you can take an appreciation of the space and the beauty of the space on its own as a landmark, as this archaeological site. But if you have a bit of understanding of the history of the space, it adds that much more gravitas to what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. For example, my first time seeing the strait in person, I was driving along the highway along the north of the island from Palermo on the west over to Masana, and you kind of come out of a tunnel, and then all of a sudden you're looking down 
at the strait coming down from the mountains. And it takes you a moment where you're like, what is this lake doing here? Oh, I see. It's actually, yeah, I see a sea. It's actually connecting two different seas. Mm-hmm. And also, just hang on that for a moment. So we've got this coastal region, this flat coastal region right next to the strait. But as you mentioned just there, towering right behind it are these impressive mountains too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've got Masana in Sicily, which is basically sandwiched between the Nebrodes Mountains and the Strait, and then modern Reggio Calabria on the east, on the Italian bank, with the tail end of the Apennines right behind it as well. So both of these cities, both of these ancient poles, aren't dealing with that much kind of farmable land, really. They're making clever use of terraces and, and trade, basically. Well, we'll go on to that, but let's stick on the two cities then for a moment. And let's start with Regio, ancient Regium. This is a city with Greek origins. Yeah, yeah. It's actually uh, founded by Masana. Uh, some Euboean settlers show up in the 8th century, thereabouts, as Greek settlers are colonizing what will become Magna Graecia. And it seems that they very quickly realize the strategic potential of the strait. It is the most direct sea route through to the western shore of Italy. So they set up Masana on the Sicilian coast in its naturally curved harbour. So it gets its original name, Zankel, from the Greek for sickle shape. And then that same century, a few years later, the same group founds Reggio on the other side. I imagine to capitalise on the space. So that's impressive that all from basically the origins that there are very close connections between these two cities. And does this really emphasise how in their long history, even before the Romans come, that these two settlements, they are linked to the tracts of land opposite them? So Regium's early history is linked to that of Sicily, but also Messana's early history is linked to that of southern Italy. Yeah, very much so. There is a, a continuity back and forth between the two that you can recognise in the archaeological evidence and the sources themselves tell us how similar these people are, how much back and forth there is between the two. The fact that you can hear dogs bark and cocks crow from one shore to the other. And at all times, weather permitting, you can see your sister city across the strait, which I can only imagine builds a certain level of community or rivalry. Or rivalry. Well, we'll get onto that in a second. Well, let's focus then on Masana for a little bit, because this has got a really extraordinary history, sometimes with the Italian peninsula. And Dustin, just tell us through the story of the Mama Times quickly, because I think this is a really <laughs> amazing, infamous story, but an interesting one nonetheless. Yeah. So for those of you who are not familiar, the Mama Times are this almost mythical or legendary group of people at this point. They're this group of companion mercenaries, allegedly companion mercenaries, we're told they're companion, who were in the employ of Syracuse. And then eventually they move on from that job. They start marching north. And they wind up in Masana, at which point they say, you know what, this isn't all that bad. (laughs) And they just kind of take it for themselves. And depending which source you are referring to here, some sources are quite cutthroat. And the Mamatines came in and they killed all the men of age and married all their wives and took the cities for themselves. Some later, more apologetic sources are like, oh, no, the Mamatines were invited in because of X, Y and Z. So they very quickly established themselves in Masana as a very prominent force to be reckoned with. And of course, they play a key role in the First Punic War. 
And what is the role then they therefore play in the First Punic War, which really starts linking them with Rome? Yeah, so you have this whole tug of war going on behind the scenes between Rome and Carthage that I'm sure much of your audience are familiar with. And alongside that, you have this kind of trend in antiquity of smaller cities requesting garrisons from larger cities as security and as a way to build alliances. Masana, which is now led by the Mamertines, begins by inviting a Carthaginian garrison into its city and then very quickly swaps sides and decides, no, thank you. <laughs> We'd rather have the Romans here. <laughs> this is kind of, it's seen by many as kind of the match that lights the tensions between Rome and Carthage, where Rome is now saying, ah, no, we have a right to be here. Carthage is saying, no, we were here first. Thank you very much. And this gives Rome their foothold in Sicily, which is, I would argue, one of the major turning points of Rome as a city and as a ancient Mediterranean power. I love the fact that you mentioned that it was a foothold for the Romans in the First Punic War. And is this really evidence for how the Strata Messina in antiquity, even before the Romans really come on the scene, that this strait of water, this small stretch of water, was never a, a solid, hard boundary line between ancient Italy and ancient Sicily. Yeah, very much so. It's seen as a mutable space long before the Romans show up. Uh, so in the 4th century, you have Dionysius, the tyrant of Syracuse, taking over the entirety of kind of the eastern coast of Sicily and parts of South Italy, and to the point where Sicily, for him, extends into South Italy, and he tries, or we are told that he wished to dig a trench across Calabria and kind of sever the toe of Italy <laughs> and building a second strait almost to kind of draw that whole of Calabria over towards Sicily. Wow. So where, where you draw the line really depends who you're asking and when and what their political motivations are. Well, talking about political motivations... Why is the year 36 BC so significant in the history of the Strait? 36 BC is a year I love, and it makes me sad. <laughs> so 36 BC notably is the Battle of Naulochus. And this is the kind of deciding naval battle between Octavian, between the younger Caesar, and between Sextus Pompeius, who I believe is the last surviving son of Pompey at this point. Mm. At the very least, the last surviving prominent son. So with Caesar's death in 44 and the prescriptions through to 43, Sextus is labelled one of the enemies of the state, flees to Masana and uses the political capital that the Pompeius name has in Sicily to establish his base of operations there as one of the kind of last bastions of the Republic. Fast forward several years and back and forth, and yeah, 36 BC is where Octavian and his forces managed to weasel out Sextus from Masana and take Sicily. And what happens as a consequence to Sicily and the Strait of Masana? Uh, from this point on, the border, the boundary, the strait itself is kind of established politically as the hard boundary between what is and is not Italy and what is and is not the province of Sicily, for several hundred years. And by the time that Sicily as a province is kind of rolled into Italia proper, that distinction doesn't, it does not carry the same weight as it would because there's already been so many expansions of citizenship and such. 
36 BC does kind of cement the strait as the official divide between Sicily and Italy, which, looking at it in the 21st century on a map, seems like a very normal thing to do. Yeah, there's a strait of water there. Let's put the boundary there. But as we've discussed, that's not that straightforward. Exactly. And so you kind of precipitated what the next question would be. So this political boundary is now a political boundary, but socially and culturally, it is less straightforward. There is, shall we say, continuation of what's been happening before. Yeah, very much so. It seems that from the kind of third century BC through to the first century BC, you have a bit of cultural stagnation, economic stagnation in the area where the strait is kind of just being used as kind of Rome's foothold in the area with some potential military hiccups, I guess, here and there. But from the arisal of the Principate and the establishment of the empire, the relation between Reggio and Masana only continues from strength to strength as it becomes this quite prominent trade hub, as it becomes a major port of the region, as it becomes the main space through which goods from the east are transported through to Rome. And the people of Masana and the people of Reggio do not seem to mind all that much that there is this, quote, political boundary between them. So although there's this boundary, they are still very much united, these two cities, by the trade routes that are flowing right through, well, the centre, right through the Strait of Messina. Yeah. You can imagine the Roman political state at the top level has a vested interest in what is Italy and what isn't Italy. That makes an amount of sense. But at the base level, at the everyday level of merchants, traders, um, artisans, everyday folk living in Masana and Reggio, that distinction, what is that to them? <laughs> what does that matter when you're running a ceramics factory in Reggio that exports brick tiles and housing bricks to Masana? And so what is the surviving archaeology at Masana and at Regium telling us about where these traders are coming from in the empire? In a word, fragmentary. Because so we've mentioned Pompeii before. Pompeii, of course, has the, the luxury of being buried by Vesuvius. Masana and Reggio have the luxury of being in an incredibly seismically active area where each city has been leveled several times over the last <laughs> 2,000 years uh, to the point where any kind of excavation in the area is fraught and very tricky. So what evidence we do have is, for the most part, I would say inscriptions and epitaphs. They are a large body of evidence that can tell us a lot about the kinds of people who are living in this region and passing through this region. We don't have much in the way of temples. We don't have much in the way of even solid concrete knowledge of where the Forum and the Agora were. But we do have a lot of small personal pieces of archaeological evidence. That's interesting. So it's the amount of the inscriptions that survive that are telling us so much about the culture and the identity of these two prime cities of Messana and Regium, particularly in the Roman imperial period. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So we've got, as a small example, in the third century AD, you have one epitaph uh, from a man from Turkey who was a merchant of Taiki amulets. So good, good luck amulets. And... What's his name here? Ulpius Nikephoros from, from Syrian Antioch. Wow. 
And there's just this, this quite fascinating body of inscriptions of these everyday people going about their lives. It's impossible for the most part for us to say whether they lived there or whether they were passing through. But if nothing else, their epitaphs definitely highlight them as a foreigner, as not from this region. So what are these inscriptions? You mentioned these people coming from further east. What are these inscriptions telling us about the the makeup of the people who lived in these cities? For instance, what languages do we think they really spoke? Certainly, it's a very uh, metropolitan, cosmopolitan area by virtue of being such a prominent port and kind of crossroads of trade routes. Strictly speaking about the uh, epigraphic record, you have about two to one split of Greek to Latin. Wow. In the uh, inscriptions across Regio and Masana. And that kind of supports what we see in the literature, in the ancient literature as well, with Strabo saying that Regium is one of the last three places in Italy that speaks Greek by his time. Uh, so it's Regio, Tarentum, and Naples, I believe, were the three he cites as the last three bastions of Greek language <laughs> on the peninsula. That's really, really interesting. And that's why I said, wow, just there is because Messana and Regium in the Roman imperial period, this really feels like the heart of the Roman Empire. And yet you have these bustling trading cities at the bottom of Italy still in the majority speaking Greek rather than Latin. Yeah, and it takes a long time for kind of Latin to kind of kick in as the, the language of official texts uh, when you consider that you have this strong Roman imperial, lowercase i imperial presence in the area from the third century. You have official honorifics and dedications being put up in the first century AD that are in Greek. <laughs> and presenting like the full trionomena of the Roman officials in Greek. So going on a bit further than that, what does this tell us about, for let's say, the local elites of places like Regium or Messana? Does it really seem to emphasise that these elites had been there since, well, pre-Roman times? Yeah, and it tells us, I think more so, it gives us this interesting insight into the way Roman elites operate. You kind of governor level hmm. Roman elites from, you know, these old aristocratic families. And it, it, to me, it gives us an insight into the flexibility involved in that position. You are one of these elite Romans going down to Reggio for whatever station you've been set there. And from the evidence, there's no indication that they're kind of kicking up a stink and demanding things are posted in Latin or whatever. It's like, no, this is... This is the way the city has operated for now hundreds of years. So for all of our discussion about kind of the boot of Roman imperialism, and it was a boot often, there seems to be quite a lot of care and respect for the continuation of the culture and the cultural processes in the strait. Do you think these cities are therefore, shall we say, a microcosm for the cosmopolitan nature, the interconnected, the global nature of the Roman Empire. Yeah, very much so. This idea of the global impact and the global reality of the Roman Empire is one that very much rests at the centre of my research, looking at the way trade routes connect people, the way that people connect people, the ways that we should be looking at these regions beyond the lines in the sand that were drawn 2,000 years ago, and that we need to consider the fact that these spaces were, were mutable, were liminal, and were not so black and white as we might kind of default to thinking them today.
Hi, I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And I'm Matt Lewis. And all this month on Gone Medieval, we're delving deep into the pivotal moments that shaped the destiny of England. The Battle of Hastings. Three men struggle for supremacy. The Saxon king, Harold Godwinson. The Viking warlord, Harold Hardrada. And the ambitious Norman duke, William the Conqueror. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Ancients listeners, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my fellow History Hit podcast host, John Wildman, and is direct audio from the hit TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. Now on Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find the objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. What I love about this podcast is that it's a deep dive into specific objects, revealing the amazing stories they can tell about a person, about a place, or a time in history. It's the detail and laser focus that really resonates with me. Listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions, and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers, and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. Justin, what are some of the most extraordinary inscriptions, in your opinion, from this this area that really emphasises that this link was much more permeable than we might think, this boundary? I'm going to pull up one in particular because it is my favourite by a long while. <laughs> so it was discovered in the 90s and it's only been published officially in 2016. And it's about Orion in his role as a foundation deity of the Straits. I believe it's in Diodorus Siculus who talks about how Orion helped build Cape Polaris, which is the northeastern cape of Sicily. I'll skip straight to the English translation of this uh, inscription. It's over five lines. It's, Hail, blessed one, August scion of our land, the August scion being Orion, the August star, guardian of Zankel with its safe haven and of Cape Polaris, watching over the narrow firth and the flood tide of the straits, where, in the unceasing ebb and flow of the pursuing waves, the Tyrrhenian waters take up arms against the Adriatic. And there's just a lot here. <laughs> Not only is the English there, all English translation is a bit stilted, 
uh, mine especially, but it doesn't do justice to the fact that this inscription is five lines of dactylic hexameter written in Greek in the second century AD in the kind of heart of Rome's trade network. So in the heart of Rome's trade network, at the height of the Roman Empire, at the strait, in the cities in the strait, one of the religious cults that seems to be of prime of place is this one stretching back hundreds of years to the Greek period, to a Greek mythological myth. Yeah, and the language itself is kind of harnessing the, the archaicness of the space, right? They, they refer to the city as Zankel. It hasn't been Zankel since like the 5th century BC. So it's 700 years removed at this point, but there's still that, that memory and that understanding of the space and the, the mythical importance of it. So why is this inscription, Dustin, so important and so significant, so interesting when looking at the connectivity of this part of the ancient world? It tells us a lot, not only about things we might typically hope to find in inscriptions, like names of people, ranks of people, what their jobs were, how long they lived, but it gives us an idea of how people conceive the world as well. The fourth and fifth lines, so the final two lines of the inscription, in the unceasing ebb and flow of the pursuing waves, the Tyrrhenian waters take up arms against the Adriatic. That gives us just such a stunning insight into the level of understanding the ancient people had about the world around them and how it functioned. That's a pretty bang-on description of how the strait operates as a hydrographic feature. Because this is where one sea ends and then another sea ends and they link up, as it were, quite a maritime danger zone. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It is where the Tyrrhenian and the Adriatic meet. Uh, let's see if I can get this right. The warmer Tyrrhenian is flowing over the colder Adriatic and the currents switch every six hours. And at this point, you have the legendary mythical kind of whirlpools and choppy wages and mirages appearing. In that very narrow section we talked about right at the beginning of kind of three kilometers by 70 meters deep, you have up to a million cubic meters of water being pushed through every second. <laughs> it's an absurdly large, powerful force happening here multiple times a day, every day. And it's stunning to see that those mechanics understood in such a clear and poetic way. Well, keeping on the straits themselves for a bit then, what do the literary sources of antiquity, what do they tell us about the straits? Do they give a similar vein, as it were, to what you've just said? Do they always seem to portray the straits as this quite maritime danger zone or do they portray it in various different ways it kind of depends who you're talking to really similarly to whether or not you consider the strait a boundary whether or not you consider it a danger zone also depends who you're talking to famously of course it is the home of Scylla and Charybdis so today you have the modern town of Scylla which rests on a quite prominent cliff on the kind of the north uh, western tip of the toe of Italy and then you have the whirlpools forming from these actions taking place in the water from the currents being Charybdis. And then you have some sources such as Book 3, Book 3 of the Aeneid, <laughs> where Aeneas is on his way to, he's received his marching orders, he's on his way to Carthage. And he's told on his journey, do not go into the strait, that's not a good time. And as they're sailing past, you get these wonderful images of the waves licking at the stars and then falling to the depths of the underworld um, as kind of the sky shakes and the seas boil. Compare that to something like Cicero, who in multiple texts mentions the strait as kind of the gateway to Rome's empire 
It is the method through which Rome achieves all it does. And let's keep on Cicero then for a bit, because Cicero's writings and his history, well, what he gets involved in, he actually has quite an active connection with the strait and with the city of Messana. Yeah, so famously, uh, Messana and Sicily quite heavily involved in Cicero's Verine orations. So this is Cicero's kind of landmark oration that puts him on the map as a force to be reckoned with in the rhetorical spheres of Rome where he so thoroughly dismantles the accused governor Verres of misconduct that he only has to present the opening act and Verres flees. <laughs> Cicero then kind of takes his victory lap after the fact and publishes the Verres orations in their entirety. The fifth oration, I believe, features quite a lengthy passage about Verres's unlawful execution of a Roman citizen on the strait, where he's crucified in Masana and forced to look out across the strait at Italy, where he's so close to his homeland, he's so close to the land of justice and law, but it's still out of reach. It's quite interesting. I mean, if I was listening to that, from what you said there, and they were saying that Italy is the land of justice and law, and Sicily is this very different place. Just from there, it sounded like this strait was a boundary in certain senses, perhaps in political senses. But once again, teaming back to this idea that you've really emphasised during this podcast, that socially and culturally, it was very similar at Masana to what it would have been like across the strait at Regium. Yeah, and there's very much that idea of while it is a boundary at sometimes, that boundary can be easily broken and easily forded. So just popping back to Cicero there, his point is not that just this individual who was crucified is forced to look at his homeland, but it's that it's right there. And if we don't pull up Verres and make an example of him, well, that could be here next. And you see that in the rhetoric around Spartacus as well, and Spartacus's rebellion. They make it right down to the strait. And the fear is that, should they cross the strait, though, they're going to rile up all those pesky slaves that were causing all those rebellions in the second century. We can't have that happening again. And uh, as a brief aside, I'm in no way a modern historian, but you have many accounts of the fascist Italian soldiers in World War II throwing down their arms as soon as the Allies forded the strait and entered Italy from Sicily. I've been meaning to watch Von Ryan's Express. I've been told to watch Von Ryan's Express. It all happens in that film. So there, even today, there is that very powerful idea of if you ford the strait, you take whichever part of land you're going onto. Keeping on the political side, I guess, a, a bit longer, and but also this idea that actually there is so many similarities, so much strength between Regium and Masana that continues in antiquity. We see with so many cities in antiquity, and particularly, I think, in Hellenic city-states and Greek city-states, those city-states that are very close to each other, whether it's Athens and Thebes, or Athens and Corinth, or Elis and nearby city-states, this intense rivalry, this intense rivalry, this hatred brimming between them. Do we see anything similar between Regium and Messana, which geographically are very close, but of course separated by the significant stretch of water? Only in very specific instances, and I, I struggled, I'm sure one will be pointed out to me after the fact, but I struggle to think of one that is the result of the people of Masana and Reggio. If they're ever at odds, it's usually other powers, whether they be tyrants or governors or, or armies, using them for their own means. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact, as we discussed, they do feel very isolated with the mountains to their back, the shores creating this almost in mirage that they're in a lake and the cities looking out across one another. There's an understanding that of 
I believe that they share the same space, but they kind of need each other almost. And they both have such good access to trade routes and the products of Sicily and Italy respectively, that there doesn't seem to be a large amount of contest between the two over those resources. So why do you think that they really do need each other? What's the cause for this necessity, this need? That is something I'm unpacking, <laughs> to put it lightly. I, I, I might have more for you in a year and a half when I finish the PhD. But I think it's just this long history they have of back and forth. It's this long history of connection. I think it helps that neither city was ever powerful enough in its own right to kind of trigger a kind of Athens-Thebes situation. Throughout the Greek and Hellenistic period, they're largely kept in check by Syracuse, by Carthage, by the other powerful cities of Magna Graecia. And then by the time Rome shows up, Rome more or less, save a few decades, has control of both cities, save some like rebellious garrisons and whatnot. Is this perhaps a reason then, the key commercial reason of these two cities is a key point as to why they're seem to be so socially and culturally similar even into the Roman imperial period because the strength of their cities the economic strength of their cities relies on the amount of trade passing through and the fact that they're very similar socially and culturally only benefits that yeah absolutely the sources in the archaeology both speak to an understanding of how the cities benefit one another rather than they would hinder one another and you see that uh, again back in 36 where you have Sextus Pompeius' control of Masana and de facto control of Regio until the younger Caesar Octavian kind of really puts his boot in Regium, that he has a total stranglehold over Rome. He's able to starve Rome out on multiple occasions because he has control of the strait. So strategic importance, but also commercial importance, mm. significant in both cases. Absolutely, yeah. And you only see that increase through to the imperial period. For the, the most part, Sicily and South Italy and the Strait disappear from the kind of historical narrative after 36. The sources are no longer interested what's happening in Masana and Regium and poor old Ulpius, the Tyche amulet salesman. The narratives move on to, you know, the goings-on of emperors in the empire. But the cities carry on strength to strength, trading in wine, in ceramics, in the wood of the Sela forest, which is a... Uh, in the kind of the mountain and the hinterlands of Regium. The fish and the wine both are recorded in multiple sources as being particularly delectable. The swordfish of the strait is quite famous. They only go strength to strength economically. So it's interesting that like trade is not it's not just Masana and Regium are midway stations, shall we say, between trade being brought in from the east or from Africa on its way to Rome. It is also producing local goods as well to be shipped across the empire from there. Yeah, and it kind of comes and goes. So in the Republic, as I mentioned, you have that kind of stagnation of styles and the trades between Masana, between Reggio, between the Aeolian Islands. It's ongoing, but it just seems to be kind of puttering along at its own pace. By the second century AD, you have this big boom with North African trade coming into Italy. And you see quite an impact of that trade in Reggio and Masana. And their own exports are there, but they're overshadowed by the North African imports. But then you get to the 4th century AD with the shift of the capital to Constantinople, shifting a lot of that North African trade away from Italy. And now Reggium in particular 
becomes quite prominent in its production of ceramics and timber and pitch and becomes quite a player in the region off the back of those resources. You mentioned there quite a lot of trade coming either from from Africa, from the south, southwest and from the east. Do we ever hear of any traders coming to Messana or Regium from the west, from places like modern day Spain or southern France? If there is a Spanish or Gallic name in the Straits epigraphic record, I have not seen it. They don't seem to appear. They seem to get stuck in kind of Palermo or Rome and they don't make it to the Strait. And that, I think, reflects fairly kind of the trade routes we see um, and the way the trade routes operated in the kind of the height of the empire. If you're coming from Spain or Gaul, you're commonly going to kind of hug the coast around the kind of northern edge of the Mediterranean and then come down Italy's western side to Rome. And then you might go back again. So of the 360-odd inscriptions that make up the corpus of Reggio Masana, I haven't seen a single name I could identify as solidly kind of Gallic or Spanish. It's predominantly Eastern. That's interesting. And it's also interesting how 360-odd inscriptions that survive, that seems like a hell of a lot. That must be telling us so much about the social makeup, the culture of Messana and Regium and its links to the East. And this economic and strategic importance of the Strait of Messana it seems really interesting that we seem to see it with another key strait in antiquity further east. We were chatting about this just before starting. The Hellespont, where you have also, I think they're two prime cities, ancient Greek cities of Abydos and Cestus, opposing each other at one of the narrowest points. And once again, perhaps maybe it's a similar story there where they are helping each other to maintain good strength over trade going between the Black Sea and the Aegean, but also strategic importance being able to block it off if need be. Absolutely right. And we see that time and again through the kind of classical Greek period of how powerful control of the Hellespont is. And when you, you being the local people who live there, when you have such powerful control over a quite relatively small space, I think it makes decent sense to work together (laughs) on that. You could fight with your neighbor and there are times certainly where they do and where Reggio and Masana do. But the story long form is one of cooperation and mutual interest. So what do you think, Dustin, just to really wrap it up, what do you think are some of the big lessons to learn from the inscriptions from your work at Masana and from Regium in the Roman imperial period? They're a fascinating insight, I think, into these kinds of port cities, these transitional spaces in the Roman world and particularly the empire. There are many studies, many books, many recordings out there of uh, studies of kind of the major Italian ports, you know, Portus, Ostia. And the strait is definitely one that is understudied in that regard by virtue of being fragmentary and by virtue of it being a lot of the publications over the last few decades do not get translated into English very often. So you're dealing with a predominantly Italian scholarship, which does scare people off. It certainly scared me off during my master's. But yeah, just the the inscriptions give you this fascinating insight into what are otherwise very mundane everyday lives, which the more you look at them, the more you realize they're as interesting and sometimes even more so than the grand narratives of history. So these inscriptions are actually giving a very amazing, remarkable insight into the traders, the everyday traders and the people of Masana and Regium, rather than always, as I said, the emperors or the governors or those people that we hear about a lot in other literary sources. 
Exactly, yeah. And they can tell us all kinds of fascinating little tidbits about how a society chooses to represent itself. One epitaph from Masana is for several young sailors from Turkey who die in a shipwreck in the strait. Another one is for a comedic actor from Cyprus. There's another one which is just fantastically odd. And I only mention it because it's only six lines long and it changes script three times, <laughs> which is just kind of peak, <laughs> peak straight of Masana energy, I think. Lines one to three are in Latin. Lines four to five are Greek in Latin script. And then line six is in Greek. So what is this inscription? What do we know about it? It's an epitaph to a Fabia Spirata and a Solustus Agathocles, who says his nickname is the Rhodian. <laughs> so uh, that's it. It's just a, you know, two Fabia Spirata and two Solustus Agathocles, the Rhodian. And then over those six lines, you have just a phenomenally efficient use of whether it's code switching, whether it's a stock epitaph having names added to it whether it's a mason who's not super confident in his letters but recognizes the names it's a very interesting one and gives us a very interesting idea into kind of the mutability of the space so i guess this is very much evidence for the unique bilingualism shall we say of the strait of Misano in antiquity yeah studying bilinguality in the ancient world is so fraught but there's certainly a case to be made for an amount of flexibility in the strait. There is a family, gosh, what are their names? The Theseus? Yeah, the family of Tiberius, Claudius, Claudianus, who there are four epitaphs attached to. His wife and his eldest son are in quite nice Latin script. They would have cost a fair bit. But then there's two more, which are to his younger children, and they, are, they survive very poorly. What has survived does not look like it was in super great condition initially anyway, and they're in Greek. So whether that means that scholars have got this wrong and these are two different families, whether that means this man didn't think his youngest children were super crash hot and didn't deserve the big shiny Latin epitaphs, whether that means they were at two different points of his life and his kind of need to establish epitaphs and the quality they should be and the language they should be in has changed throughout his life uh, is something we have yet to unpack. Well, there we go. Regium Messana, important ports in antiquity, very different to the likes of Ostia and Portus, but remarkable in their own way, as you have brilliantly explained in the last 40 minutes or so. Dustin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you very much. Lovely to see you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.